0: Acts 20, we haven't been in Acts in a long time, a couple of months. Beginning in November was the last time uh, that we looked at Acts. We're going to try to finish it up here in the next couple of months. So let me give you a, a broad overview again. Key verse for Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the entire book of Acts is about the, the spreading of the gospel, the expansion of the kingdom through those geographic bands by the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've been in that last band, the ends of the earth, for uh, several weeks, and we've been looking at Paul. He's the primary figure in the second half of Acts. He was the one that we see. He's He's the name that we get for the person who took the gospel to the ends of the earth. There are plenty of others who did, but Paul is the one that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, focuses on. And we said for us, you may not remember this, that even though we're two thousand years removed from Acts chronologically, in terms of God's timeline or in terms of, of salvation history, we that's our context. We live in the book of Acts. Spiritually that's where we are. We live on this side, post resurrection of Jesus, pre Jesus' return. We're living in between Jesus's first and second coming. And so the instructions are still the same take the gospel to everyone who doesn't yet know it, be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that work. So although, again, we're 2,000 years removed culturally and historically from the events that we're going to read about, spiritually, and in terms of God's timeline, this is where we live. God says with him a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. So it's only been a couple of days in his mind. in In this context, I want you to place yourself in this story because it is where you live. So Paul spent the last 3 years in Ephesus, that's where we left off. Ephesus is a major city in Asia, huge commercial hub. Um Artemis was the the goddess of the city. There's a huge temple there, it was a tourist attraction. A lot of activity in Ephesus. Paul has been there for 3 years, the longest he stayed anywhere. And uh, he's getting ready to go home. He begins to formulate some travel plans, kind of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's getting ready to leave Ephesus. And this is the route he's going to take. What we're going to read today sounds a whole lot, it's like an itinerary in a lot of ways. So Ephesus is yellow. That's where Paul is. He wants to go to Jerusalem, which is down bottom right in that red that red star. That's where he wants to go just for a brief visit. That's where, the, where that's the beginning of the church was in Jerusalem. That church is almost exclusively Jewish. The churches that Paul is planting, those other stars, are almost exclusively Gentile. Not completely, but mostly Gentile. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking up an offering from all of those churches, and he's going to take it to Jerusalem. There's, a, there's, some, there's been a famine in Jerusalem. There's some poor in Jerusalem. And so he's taking up a collection, and he's going to go to Jerusalem and drop off this money. And then he wants to go to Rome, which is purple star, top left corner. He's going to visit Rome, and then he wants to go to Spain, which is off the map, which is farther to the west. So he knows he's not going to visit these churches anymore. So he kind of he's, he's doing a farewell tour. He's collecting money. He wants to go to Jerusalem briefly, drop off that money. Then he wants to pop into Rome because he's never been there, and then go on to Spain, which is an unreached area. He says, I've done everything there is to do in this area, so now I'm going to Spain. Because it, it, as far as he knows, it has not yet been reached with the gospel. So that's Paul's travel plan, and he brings people with him. So he's, this is, he's got cash, and so he picks up representatives from a lot of these churches to go with him to Jerusalem. Some of it's accountability, because he's carrying cash from their church. And then some of it's because he knows he's not going back to those churches anymore. Those people are never going to see him again. And so this way, the the representatives can go back to their home church and say, here's what happened. Here's here's what the Jerusalem church had to say to us. Here was their response to our gift. And so Paul's got a lot of traveling companions with him on this journey. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, Ephesians 19 ended with a riot. You might not remember that. Paul had been there for three years. The gospel had begun to take root and transform that city, so much so that it was affecting people's spending habits. There was a group of guys, kind of like a union, a guild of silversmiths, and they made these shrines for buying them anymore. People were becoming Christians, and they weren't buying them. It was costing them money. And so that guild, that union, started a riot. And it, it, it didn't go anywhere. It just it ended. It kind of fizzled out. But I think that may have been a catalyst for Paul for leaving, and you'll see that here in chapter 20, verse 1. So that's where we'll start. When the uproar, so that riot, had ended, Paul sent for the disciples of Ephesus, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So those were those couple of those churches that we saw. Philippi, the Philippian, letter to the Philippians, um, Thessalonians, Thessalonica was in Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and he finally arrived in Greece. That's where Corinth was, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby; Timothy also, and Titius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later we joined the others at Troas where we uh, stayed for seven days. If you'll go back to that map, please, Doug. So Paul is, again, it's a farewell tour. Probably all of that stuff that we read just now, 18 to 24 months of time. That's about how long all of that took. So he leaves the yellow star. He goes through those green stars. There are a couple other churches up there that he picks up. He spends three months down in the purple one, that is, or the red, whatever color, that fuchsia in Corinth. It's an underused color. And then he works all the way back through on land. He's going to sail over to Syria over there on the right, but he hears there's a plot to kill him. That's something that the Jews have kind of been on his. Uh, kind of dogging him his whole life, actually his whole ministry. Since he became a Christian, there's been a group of Jews that have kind of followed him around and have tried to cause trouble for him, and that's still the case. So rather than getting on the boat and sailing to Syria, he goes back around land and he winds up in that blue star, which is Troas. And again, he's got those traveling companions with him because he's collecting money uh, for the church in Jerusalem. Verse 7 on the first day of the week, we, so now Luke is part of the mix, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. It's tough, tough. Don't fall asleep in church. Paul went down, (laughs) threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He said he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, and talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I really don't have any reason. I don't don't know why this story's in here. (laughs) I don't. It's like they're traveling, and hey, here's a story from our trip. You know, maybe you have those when you travel someplace. Here's a little funny story. So, so he's in Troas. He knows he's never coming back. And so he gathers the Christians and he starts talking to them. And uh, most like, this is actually, this is the first place that we read about worship on Sunday. The Jewish uh, Sabbath was on Saturday. That was a day, the holy day for them. This is, we see Christians were worshiping on Sunday all the way back to the book of Acts. And so this is the first, first recorded instance. Church service. Most likely it happened at night because guys had to work during the day. Um, this guy, Eutychus, probably in his, uh, early, late teens, early twenties. They're upstairs. There's torches in the room, which use oxygen. And so that makes the air a little bit heavy. So you get sleepy. And it's, Paul's been talking for a really long time. Kind of the picture to me is he knows he's not coming back. And so he's shooting every bullet in his gun. He's telling him everything he can think to tell him, because he's never going to see him again. And we'll see that uh, in some future uh, verses here where Paul says he knew he was not going to return along the way. And so he's talking to them and talking to them. Eutychus goes to the window, which is just a hole in the wall, no glass, because he's trying to get some fresh air because there are all these torches that have been burning for hours at this point. And he falls asleep and he falls out the window and, and dies, which I would think would be pretty traumatic. appears to not be a big deal to them at all. Paul goes down outside, lays down on Eutychus, I guess, picks him up off the sidewalk, says he's alive. And then he starts preaching again. That's like not even a bump in the road. He just keeps on moving. Again, I, to me, it's just a story. I'm not, I, I have nothing for you from Eutychus. Don't fall asleep in church. If you do, don't sit in the window. If you fall, maybe you'll be raised from the dead. Or maybe not. Then you just be in heaven. Either way, it'll be fine. <laughs> All right, here's a bunch more place names. We show that next map, Doug. It's got a big map and a small map, just so you can. Some of y'all like to orient yourself. So this next, he talked. Paul is going from that purple star, Troas. He winds up back in Ephesus. He's not making a lot of progress towards Jerusalem. So two years later, he winds wide, He's right back where he started. And this, this next section that we're going to look at, is it lists all of these place names that we don't care about. It's just him moving from one star to the next. That's that little breakout over there on the right if you're a geography person and you like that kind of thing. So we went on ahead to the ship, and we sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made his, this arrangement because he was going there on foot. So all of his companions get on a boat. Paul chooses to walk. We don't know why. Most likely, the boats were on a schedule, and maybe Paul didn't want to be on that schedule. He wanted to stay and finish saying everything he had to say. He wanted to be on his own timetable, so he walked. When he met us at Asos, we took him aboard, and then we went on to There, we The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off of Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, we arrived at Miletus, which is 30 miles from Ephesus. So he's right back where he started two years ago. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry, apparently, to reach Jerusalem, if possible by the day of Pentecost. So he doesn't want to go into Ephesus. He's, again, had deep, deep relationships there. he had been there three years, longer than he had been anywhere else. Probably thinking it would be hard for him uh, to leave in a timely fashion. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he doesn't want to go into the city because he's probably thinking he's not going to be able to get out. So he sends a messenger to say, Hey, y'all come and I'm I'm going to talk to you out here. When these elders arrived, he said to them, You know how I've lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. We're going to stop there uh, this morning. This is the only recorded sermon in Acts that Paul delivers to a Christian audience. And so we're going to spend uh, some time working through this this week. In next week. So again, he's gathered this group. When he says elders, don't think about that the way we talk about that. Don't think about official roles or titles. Think about people who take care of other people. So for us, it might be like our small group leaders. He gathered the people who took care of other people. These churches, there's there's kind of one church in the city, and then people had congregations in their houses. And so it's it's probably the people that were in charge of those house churches or people who were hosts of house churches and people within those house churches that helped take care of the people within those smaller congregations. He had all those guys come up, and he speaks to them. Again, it's the only sermon we have in Acts of Paul speaking to a Christian audience. So he's talking to us here. And he starts by looking back. He says, "Here's, here's how I acted. Here's how I lived during my three years with you. Here's what I did, and he lists three things, these three marks of Paul's ministry when he was in Ephesus. He says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and with trials. It's interesting. The NIV says it different. He says, uh, it says he served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. If you look at it literally, he served with great humility and and with tears, and with trials because of his Jewish opponents. interesting to think about serving with trials. What's humility? Humility is is not thinking about yourself. Uh, Probably the classic quote on that is, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Great resource if you struggle with humility, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. It's $2 on Amazon. You can download. It's 50 pages. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Timothy Keller. Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Timothy Keller. Great resource if you wrestle with the whole idea of humility. Humility is slippery. If you pursue it and you focus on it, and a lot of times it, it, it's it's evasive. It's almost like yeah, humility has to be in the background. The more we kind of focus on it, it's interesting, Paul, that Luke says Paul served with great humility. It's like, well, or Paul says he served with great humility. It's like, can you, can you say that? You served with great humility? There's a place in, I think it's in Deuteronomy, where Moses, who wrote the book, said, Moses is the most humble man who ever lived. And you're kind of, okay. all right. So it can be a little slippery there in terms of going right at it. But Paul says he served with humility, with tears. I think about compassion Particularly uh, intercession, prayer. If you read through Paul's letters, when he talks uh, emotionally about the churches that he started, it's almost always in the context of praying for them. So I think you have that under, I serve the Lord, not thinking about myself. I serve the Lord by praying for you guys passionately, serving you with compassion. And I serve with trials. We don't know what trials Paul encountered in Ephesus. He doesn't really uh, go through any of those at any point. But we know he was thrown in jail a lot. And people think one of the times he was in jail was when he was in Ephesus. And, and he wrote letters. He wrote some of the books of the Bible when he was in jail. He took time when he was in jail to share with guards and to share with fellow prisoners. He, he, he served God even with his trials. He used his trials as tribulations as an opportunity to serve. So that's one of the marks of Paul's time in Ephesus. He served with humility, with tears, and with trials. He shared he says he proclaimed everything that, anything that would be beneficial. He proclaimed both publicly, if you remember he used to preach in a, a lecture hall that a guy named Tyrannus owned, and house to house, the churches met in homes. And so he bounced from house to house to house. So you can think of publicly and privately, Paul shared anything that he knew that would be beneficial to his audience. And he shared with Jews and with Gentiles. He didn't play favorites. Paul was a Jew. He would have connected most easily with Jews. But he made a point to step across boundaries to connect with Gentiles as well and to share with them. That was part of his commission. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, even though it, would have been, it was uncomfortable in some ways for him to connect with them. Served, gave, didn't play favorites. We're going to close with this. I want you thinking about this concept. You're in the book of Acts. You're a missionary too. Just like Paul, you're a missionary. You don't feel like it, but you are. Missionary means sent one. And what you see, these three marks for Paul's ministry in Ephesus, those same three things can and I would say should mark your life as well. When we talk about living like a missionary, here's a a little recipe. Rarely do we get recipes in the Bible, but here's three things very specifically. Boom, boom, boom. Here's three things that marked Paul's time in Ephesus. Three things I would say can and should mark your life wherever it is that God has called you to. And so the first thing is you've got to recognize your sent nest or your placed nest. I made up that word. You need to recognize that God has placed you wherever it is that he's placed you. And for most of us, we don't think that way. If you were to go to bed like tonight, you're going to watch Sherlock and then you're going to go to bed. And let's say after that, somewhere in that kind of in between the two, between sleeping and waking, an angel showed up in your room. Wings and everything. Big deal. Halo, music in the background, whole shebang. And said to you, Landon, you are to move to Nepal. That's where you're going. You're fine, Caitlin? You're laughing. They, yaks are big in Nepal. Yak butter, yak milk. So, just, your baby will love it. So, y'all are going to Nepal, according to this angel. If, that, if, if you both experienced that tonight, and it was that tangible, you heard with your ears and you saw with your eyes. This isn't a feeling. This is like, you're seeing this. This is an appearance of an angel. People call that a call story. And so, as you went around, and y'all, you know, you resigned from... Cornerstone, and you say, Hey, I'm gonna, we gotta raise money because we're moving to Nepal and I can't get a job there. So we're gonna, we need people to support us, to send us to Nepal, and this is the work we're gonna do. That's one of the most unreached countries on the planet, and that's where we're going. And, and, and people said, Why? And you said, Listen, Sherlock went off and I was falling asleep and an angel appeared in my room. Let me tell you the story. You have this call story. And then when you're in Nepal and it's freezing cold and you're so tired of yak butter and yak milk and you're difficult learning the language and it's hard, hard, hard ground and you get confused and you get frustrated and you get upset and you get disappointed. What you do is you remember that angel showing up in your room and say, nope, this is where God has called us. This is where God has placed us. Many of us, most of us, we don't have that. You went to college and, you, and you, you majored in something and you got a job and then you got another job and you got another job and you found a house that was big enough for your family at the time or in a school system that you wanted to live in or that was a great deal and maybe you've moved and maybe you haven't. And there's no For, for you, there's no sense of divine calling or sentness around where you are. You just are. I just live in Marietta because it's just where I live. I just live in Kennesaw. or I just, I just work at you know, Brassfield and Glory. Whatever it is that you do, I just, that's just what I do. You don't sense the hand of God in that at all, and it undercuts this whole idea of living like a missionary because you say, I'm not one. The angel didn't show up in my room. I just went to sleep. I just made these decisions. I wasn't even a Christian when I made these decisions. Or I wasn't. I didn't pray about it. I just, I just did what was next. I want you... To recognize the sovereignty of God and why you are where you are. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you consciously prayed and obeyed or not, I want you to recognize God's sovereignty in putting you wherever you are. You were placed in a context. If you read through the Bible, there are all kinds of cities and towns named. We don't know any of them. But for some reason, they're a big deal to God because place matters. Your context matters. And can you recognize the sovereignty of God in putting you there in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, even if you don't like any of those things? Doesn't mean you can't move. Not at all. I'm not saying you can't move. I'm not saying you can't change. But wherever you are, Jim Elliott, famous missionary from the 50s, wherever you are, be all there. And part of that is recognizing God's put me here. God has placed me. God has placed our church on this corner. That mean we'll never move. But for right now, this is where He's placed us. This is our area. God has placed you in Lee's Crossing or wherever it is that you live. He's placed you at Marietta High School. He's placed you at Harrison High School. That's what He's done. Doesn't mean you're not going to change, but can you recognize that? Your story might not be as cool as Landon's, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any less divine. The first step in recognizing you're a missionary is, is saying, it's, it's, of living like a missionary is recognizing you are one, is identifying your sickness or your placeness. The place where God has put you. Just like if you were in Nepal, you would know what you were doing every day. My job. i got to connect with these people. i got to learn the language. I need to try to understand culture. I need to figure out how the gospel is good news to people who are still hand-churning their own milk. How is the gospel good news to them? What does Jesus have to say to them? It's the exact same work that you're doing now. How is the gospel good news to people who make $250,000 a year? How is the gospel good news to people who don't think they have any needs at all? What does Jesus have to say to people who are affluent? Or what does Jesus have to say to people who feel like they're in a rat race? What does Jesus have to say to people who are staying home and raising their kids? What does Jesus have to say to people who are trying to climb the ladder at their company? What does Jesus have to say to people who most folks would look at and say, They're good folks. What does he have to say to them? Recognize your sentness or your placeness. And then you begin to work through these, th- these things. Serve. Marks of a missionary. Serve. Paul says, I'm serving God. The greatest way you can serve God is by serving people. First John, if you don't love your brother or sister whom you have seen, you can't love God whom you haven't. Same thing is true of service. If you're not serving brothers and sisters who you see, you're not going to serve God who you can't. The greatest way you can serve God is by serving other people, practically washing feet. And So my question to you, as you think about your scent nest or your place nest, Where is that? Name it in your mind. Where has God placed you? You're naming your neighborhood. You're naming your office. You're naming the places where you spend time. Whose feet are you washing in those places? Whose feet are you washing? It's not guilt. It's a question. Who are you serving in those places? It's what it looks like to be a missionary. It's to wash feet. This is my conviction. Start Close. Most of you live with other people. Most of you do not live by yourself. You start washing feet there. Husbands, wash your wife's feet. I'm convinced our divorce rate plummets if husbands start washing the feet of their wife. Changes everything. Ephesians 5, Paul says you love your wife the way Jesus loves the church. How did he love the church? Sacrificially. He died for us, the picture, in the upper room, John 13, washing the feet even of Judas, who he knew would betray him. Do that, husbands, and it will change your home. You can't keep score. doesn't work that way. If you're keeping score, it doesn't count. Some of you, many of you are your directors or your managers. Your uh, People work for you. People report to you. What if you started to wash their feet? This isn't servant leadership. It's just serving. Servant leadership and serving as a means to an end. This is serving for its own sake. What would it look like for you? That's countercultural. What it would look like for you to wash the feet of people who report to you? You determine their salary. You determine what they do. What would it look like for you to wash their feet? It turns things upside down. It will change your office if you can begin to do that. I'm going to use the word higher in quotes. The higher you go, the more important it is for you to intentionally serve because the flow and rhythm of your life won't force you to. The higher you go, then the more people, the more people are kind of quote under you. There's more people who serve you by design. And if you're not intentionally looking to serve them, you won't. It's the key. Step one, you want to live like a missionary. You find some feet and you begin to wash those feet. On a regular basis. It's not a once a year thing. During Christmas. It's not it. It's not just on administrative professionals day. You got to figure it out. It's not just on your anniversary. Wash the feet of your I'm trying to think through. I haven't figured it out. I have four kids. What does it look like to wash the feet of my kids? One of them's in the room. So maybe she can give some ideas. What does it look like to wash the feet of your children? If you're a parent. There's no asterisk next to that verse. It doesn't say uh, the greatest is those who serves except your kids or your spouse or people who work for you. It just says the greatest are those who serves. I would encourage you to begin to think that through in the places where God has sent you. The places where you're placed. Practical. What does it look like for me to serve? What does it look like for me to wash feet? Paul gives away anything he has that would be beneficial or profitable to others. He gives. Paul's major way of giving is by teaching. That might not be your thing, and that's okay. But do 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 you recognize the things God has given you? Parable of the talents. Everybody's been given something, one, two, or five. If I gave you a note card and said I want you to write down the one thing that God has given you or the two things that God has given you or the five things that God has given you, could you write them down? Sometimes it is money, absolutely, give it away. But it's other things as well. Some of you have been given wisdom in particular areas of your life. Some of you have been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. And if you haven't, it's probably because, honestly, you haven't asked. Those gifts are available to all of us. Are you taking the things that you freely received from God and are you giving them away to others? Paul says, I did that. Anything that I knew, anything that God had taught me that would have been beneficial to any of you, I taught you. I gave it to you either in public or in private. Again, his primary vehicle for that was teaching. That might not be yours. But can you identify the good things that God has given to you? Again, like think, do it in your mind. The things God has given me. And if you're not coming up with anything... You're being lied to by the enemy. He's got you snowed. God has given you good things. And you may, don't compare. In the parable of the talents, the guy that turns five into ten and the guy that turns two into four are both rewarded exactly the same. If you read that parable in Matthew 25, the master says verbatim to each one of them Well done. Come and enter your master's. Happiness. You were faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many. The exact same thing. He's not, Master's not comparing them to one another. He's just saying, What did you do with what I gave you? Did you invest wisely? You've been given good gifts. Are you looking in that area where you've been sent, where you've been placed, saying, Who could benefit from this? Who could benefit? To whom would this be profitable? Who could use what God has given to me? What does it look like for me to begin to give that to them without playing favorites? Paul didn't. Don't play favorites. There are people who we all naturally are drawn to. There are people who we all naturally connect with. It's easy. There are other people in that sphere who you don't necessarily connect with very well. You wouldn't invite them to your birthday party. You wouldn't have them over for dinner. There still may be something in you that would be beneficial to them, and I don't want you to miss that either. Everybody in that circle, everybody in that place where he's put you, you have some responsibility there. He's talking to the elders, people who take care of other people. All of you do that, whether that's official or not. All of you have some people that you're to take care of. God has placed you. He sent you somewhere. And in that place, you have the privilege and the opportunity to function like a missionary, to wash feet of people. Not keeping a record, not keeping score, not for the sake of anything other than its service for its own sake. You have the opportunity to give away to other people the things that he's given to you. Only as it's beneficial to them. It's not about ramming things down people's throat. It's about offering what God has given to you when when you feel that kind of prompting. I'm listening to you and I think I may have something for you. I see that need, and I, I may have something that you can use. And again, doing that across the board, not playing favorites. Key to all of this to me. We talk about living like a missionary. We're not going to do it unless God, who is a, a missionary God. He's a going God. I thought it was great, interesting what Bo said. I never really thought about that until he said it. God doesn't throw us a lifeline. He jumps in the water and comes and gets us. That's it, what the incarnation means. He doesn't stand in a boat and throw us a life preserver and say, you can grab on if you want. He jumped out of the boat and swims to us. We can resist them We can kick and scream and all of those things. But he comes to us. We have a God who goes. And so for us, thinking about that, we're not going to live as missionaries until our hearts have been captured by this going God. When he's captivated our hearts and we've got the motivation to live that way. It's not easy. It's not easy to wash feet, especially when people are ungrateful. It's not easy to give away the things that God has given to you. Jesus talks about things that we freely receive and sometimes we want to say, it wasn't free. I worked for that. There was pain involved in that for me. And it can be hard to give that away to others. Not easy. To serve people who we connect with and and people who we don't, again, not easy. But when this going God, this missionary God captures your heart, then you've got motivation to do that. You have passion to do that. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Bo, you can come back. We're going to close with ministry. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But this is the big thing I want you thinking about. I want you thinking about your heart. I don't want you feeling guilty about anything. I don't want you feeling weighed down about anything. I want you just to ask this question. Has God captured my heart? Am I captivated right now? January 15, 2017. Am I captivated by his goodness? By his beauty? By his love? Am I captivated by this deep and profound compassion he has for me and for others who don't yet know him? Am I captivated and captured with the reality that God has placed me somewhere, given me opportunity and responsibility for people who he sees as of immense worth and value? If you would say right now, that's, that's not me. God hasn't captured my heart at that level. I've been there, but I'm not there. Maybe you've never been there. Would you allow us to pray with you about that? If you're there, maybe begin to ask the Lord, God, whose feet? Whose feet do I wash tomorrow? Whose feet do I wash this afternoon? You may need to be asking the Lord, God, what are the things that you've given to me? I I'm drawing a blank. You've got to give me eyes to see. Most likely, you are diminishing the gifts. They don't seem like a big deal to you. You're comparing yourself to others, and you're looking at what you have, and you're saying, it's not, who needs this? It's a lie. Ask God. Humility is not thinking less of the things God has given you. It's not thinking less of yourself at all. It's thinking rightly, agreeing with God. God, what are the good things that you've given to me? And then maybe if you're, if you're there, God, who, who, who needs this? Who could benefit from these good things? So Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. I pray that you would charge each one of us, that you would capture our hearts on a daily basis. That we would grasp how wide and high and long and deep is your profound love for us. And our understanding and recognition of that would compel us and propel us. To give ourselves away. To live as missionaries. Wherever it is that you've placed us. And I pray for those who are wrestling right now with their place. They don't like it. God, I pray that you would either move them out of that place. Or you would move that place into their heart. And you would speak clearly about which one of those things you're doing. So come, Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up to you. pray that you would speak and that you would lead and guide and that we would all have this sense of commissioning, what it is to live our lives as missionaries. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand.